uh, Cyclone Amphan has made landfall both in West Bengal, India, and also in Bangladesh. The latest estimates are 10 million people affected, 500,000 people have lost their home. They were already facing crisis in highly overcrowded areas where coronavirus was present. It's worth noting that, you know, a refugee camp for Rohingya in, in Bangladesh has 40,000 people per square kilometer. Wuhan, where the virus began, has 6,000. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the show. Please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we're going to be talking about disaster relief. And it's just happening right now that we have super cyclone Amphan that's hit Bangladesh, eastern India. On top of that, we have COVID-19 and all the challenges that presents with social distancing. You can just imagine mass evacuations and, and the like. And it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Sanj Srikanthan, who is the CEO of Shelterbox. And Shelterbox is a disaster relief organization with a very large geographic footprint. And without further ado, Sanj, welcome onto the Do One Better podcast. Thank you, Alberto. Thanks for having me. No, not at all. Not at all. Tell us a little bit about Shelterbox. What's the organization all about? Shelterbox was formed about 20 years ago, and it was uh, an idea from a group of Rotarians in Cornwall, of all places, who were just watching television and realized that, you know, while many countries have capacity to deal with uh, many of the issues that their citizens face, immediately after disaster, there were so many things that were getting thrown at them that disaster relief is something we could always contribute and be more effective at. And combine that with the really under-resourced need for shelter. And mm. they came up with an organization that was going to get high-quality shelter materials to the ground really quickly to those most affected. And you know, globally, only about 20% of shelter needs are met. So this was not going to be a gap in the sector that we were in any danger of overfilling. Uh, and there they got going. And it went from the first response in Gujarat to uh, Haiti and cyclones and Nepal earthquake uh, and still going and still responding and now contending with coronavirus. So it's been a really great story. And and so like most NGOs, they start from something small. And I think uh, we're sort of entering our teenage years. We're not yet uh, one of the big NGOs, but I think it's a wonderful opportunity to work with this organization that has some really great people who want to think about what can we meaningfully do in a world where we are rightly decentralizing power and more local NGOs are taking on disaster relief. So that's the point we're at and that's our history. Fascinating. And when you say what can you meaningfully do, what can you do right now? So this is a cyclone that's just hit a lot of devastation. I imagine it's just unfolding in front of your eyes right now. What does an organization like Shelterbox, how, how do you react right now? What's going on in the office? What's going on on the field? Well, it's hard to cut through the news media cycle on coronavirus. And um, one thing humanitarians, whether it's Shelterbox or anyone else, can't afford to do uh, is to lick our wounds or think about our own problems. We've always got to be outward facing. So very quickly, I think the, the team realized that one of the essential preventative actions, if we're talking just about coronavirus, is to help families isolate. And if you don't have the luxury of a home and you have over 75 million people displaced worldwide, 
then the ability to isolate is non-existent. And without it, you can't even begin to stay safe from the threat of coronavirus. But of course, the world's still turning and natural disasters are still happening. And despite the Secretary General's call, I don't think we're seeing much movement around peace resolution and the ending of conflicts. So uh, we are, in many cases, dealing with disasters on top of disasters, where, for example, you, you mentioned Bangladesh, uh, Cyclone Amphan has made landfall both in West Bengal, India, and also in Bangladesh. The latest estimates are 10 million people affected, 500,000 people have lost their home. They were already facing crisis in highly overcrowded areas where coronavirus was present. It's worth noting that, you know, a refugee camp for Rohingya in, in Bangladesh has 40,000 people per square kilometer. Wuhan, where the virus began, has 6,000. So these are places where uh, the risk of transmission is much faster. And let's be clear, it's a threat to us all. If it can spread from a market in Wuhan, which much less densely populated, it can definitely uh, transmit from a refugee camp or anywhere else. And what's happening when the cyclone hits the ground is that people are losing homes, are through no choice of their own, going into crowded, even more crowded, collective shelters and centers, uh, and therefore uh, adding to the risk of transmitting coronavirus. So there we've got to respond quickly. We've got to provide family shelter to isolate safely. We've got to provide hygiene materials to uh, help people keep their hands clean. It is still the most effective single measure to prevent transmission, keeping your hands clean next to all of the other debates on PPE. So these are preventative actions on top of providing homes to the homeless, which is what we've done after crisis for the last 20 years. Mm. And you mentioned to me, I think we were speaking earlier, you said this is a crisis on top of a crisis when you have this uh, disaster plus COVID plus yeah, I mean, you could almost call it a, a sort of triple layer. So you've got the natural disaster that's the acute emergency. You've got coronavirus, which is fast becoming a chronic emergency. But then you've got the, the much wider development disparity when you are in extreme poverty. And yes, we are lowering extreme poverty. But due to the downturn in the global economy, extreme poverty is going to increase for the first time since 1998 next year. You have less resilience and ability to support your family. You do not have a government that can provide you with a furloughing scheme and pay your, your wages or bail out businesses or provide health care. There was a Liberian I remember talking to uh, when I was working on the Ebola response in Monrovia, and he said, Ebola doesn't scare him. It scares me because I don't uh, have a vaccine for it as a Westerner. But for him, Dengue can kill him. Malaria can kill him. He can't afford health care. If he doesn't work, he'll die. And so for much of the world, it may be hard to uh, recognize for us sitting in London, the lack of safety nets, the extreme poverty is life threatening on top of the acute emergency and the chronic emergency that is uh, coronavirus. So they're all uh, laying on top of each other. Very sobering. And the organization itself at, at Shelterbox, what does the team look like? Um, how many people do you have here in London? How, who do you partner with on the ground? Do you fly your staff out to the, to the front lines? What, what does the whole thing look like? Well, it's an interesting organization. Most sort of UK uh, organizations that do disaster relief internationally uh, are in London. We're headquartered in Cornwall, and it's a fascinating place. And we've got around uh, 100 staff, 110 staff in Cornwall, and about uh, 20 staff in our London office uh, doing much of the external relations work. 
it creates a unique culture, a, a way of supporting each other. It's a community as well as an organization. It still relies on huge amounts of volunteer support, both Rotary Club members, Scout Troop schools. Um, and that's one of our biggest network of supporters. And we still get um, donations posted in by checks from clubs that have been supporting us uh, all around the country. We also have response teams that go out and historically they were volunteers and now it's increasingly full-time humanitarians, but we still have volunteers in those response teams. And it's actually quite an effective way because of the training we run, which is over a long weekend, sometimes several weeks for the more extensive training in the countryside of Cornwall. We put you through everything from how to run a distribution to doing needs assessments. And so we're training up people who have then the capacity to give. Uh, and of course, our donors are, are international like many others. But one of the interesting thing is we, we've never embraced government funding and, and there are organizations that don't, for example, Doctors Without Borders, but um, we do it uh, differently in working with the public. And it's really great to therefore have an organization that has this sort of following of supporters who take an interest in what we do and want to continue to, to support us. Equally, one of the things I'd like to see is more of an international community. So we now have a team in the Philippines full time. We're looking at other countries, but most importantly, we take pride in partnering. And I do mean partnering with local organizations, sometimes in some really difficult circumstances in Syria, in Cameroon, in Somalia, and sticking with them uh, year in, year out, investing in their capacity and ultimately handing over responses to them. Because I think one of the things I've seen in, in over 10 years in humanitarian relief is we need exit strategies, especially for an NGO based in Cornwall. We don't need to be everywhere all the time forever. And so for me, partnerships are going to be important. And I think if anything, coronavirus has shown us is that uh, locally led responses need to come to the fore. Uh, it's been said before by the international community, but suddenly we're being forced to to act on it. So that's that's the shelter box community, and it's growing, and it's uh, really exciting to be a part of. Fascinating, and I imagine the uh, the disa the disasters themselves are unique, right? I mean, in Tanzania you might have flooding, while uh, in Burkina Faso you have conflict, and in the Philippines you have a tall volcano. So things look different in different contexts. Yes, we don't know what we're going to respond to, and one of the teams is 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 the Horizons team, whose whose job is to scan new products for distributions, getting on top of the tech wave, uh, but also thinking, um, scratch everything. What's the world going to look like in ten years, twenty years? What's climate change going to do? What's the disaster we haven't predicted? Um, sadly, we didn't. Uh, we did actually have uh, pandemics, but not thought through as far far along as any of us did on coronavirus or have seen with coronavirus, but. And that's really important to to think through what could the responses be in 10 years and, and how do we need to change and adapt. Paraguay is, is, is uh, where we're currently responding, except we haven't flown anyone. This was prior to coronavirus. We've been providing just remote technical support to local partners who are providing expert assistance on housing redesign based on the materials we uh, initially distributed. So this is a new way of working, remote <laughs> technical assistance, which... I think is definitely a path to the future for uh, northern NGOs. Amazing. And you, um, your background, I mean, you, you were in the British Army for about six years. You were a captain in the Army. Then you were with the IRC uh, for, what, almost 10 years, I guess? Uh, yeah. The International yeah. Rescue Committee. Uh, you come well prepared. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> been, uh, I, I think I'm restless behind a desk. Uh, and so uh, that's what led me to the army. And bear in mind, I joined the army in a sort of pre 9-11 world. It was 
uh, almost hard to describe now to us uh, 20 years almost uh, after that. Um, but um, it was exciting and it was different. And, and I really enjoyed the camaraderie. But I think through two tours of Iraq, um, I did become disillusioned with um, what militaries do and can achieve uh, versus what are the real human needs. And so I left and, and uh, took some good memories, but also some lessons and uh, did my master's. I studied in Paris and, and then later in New York. And that's where I came across the IRC, who are headquartered in, in New York, and started a 10-year adventure. And the wonderful thing about the IRC was they took uh, a guy with a master's but no humanitarian field experience and just gave me a chance to do some things, first in Haiti after the earthquake, and then South Sudan and a number of places in Africa and then the Middle East, and really taught me um, so much about what it is to be a humanitarian and also how to think about the future differently as well. Um, and I, I, that's where I got my grounding and uh, I've, I've no regrets. I've, I've loved being a humanitarian and it's great to be able to join another bunch of great individuals at Shelterbox to to think about what's what's next. Uh, but I'm still in touch with many colleagues at uh, IRC. I was going to ask, I mean, I imagine there's a lot of communication and collaboration uh, between organizations like the IRC, Shelterbox, Action Aid and, and others, right? Yes, there is. I mean, increasingly year on year, I've seen better collaboration between NGOs uh, and even the UN. I think there's a lot further to go. Um, and there's some great work being done on why have we got multiple NGOs doing the same type of work in the same country? Why don't we have a single NGO doing each type of work and start to consolidate or work in consortiums or hand over to local communities and local NGOs and have a plan to do that as part of every sort of project we do? So. There's a long way to go, but um, I'm encouraged by the direction of travel that what the uh, humanitarian community is taking. Yeah. And one point you touched on a little bit earlier that I think is really interesting to, to flesh out. So you mentioned that you have volunteers who go to the front lines, and these volunteers, the reason, part of the reason why they provide so much value is because of the training you provide them. So I'd love to know a little bit more about that training, and also I imagine that that means that if somebody's watching the news right now about the cyclone, the super, super cyclone in Bangladesh and India, they can't just hop on a plane and go help out. They need to be trained in advance, right? No, and, and you're absolutely right. When I first heard about sort of volunteers going to disasters as, as someone who has become a professional humanitarian, I was slightly nervous, but the, the training is what makes the difference. And I have to take myself back to 2010 where I um, started in the field with very little training, but a lot of support from colleagues at IRC. And uh, not, not to let you into a secret, but it's not rocket science. I mean, it, it requires learning and skills and experience, but it can be done. Uh, I think what we need to be clear is what can be done by international teams and what can be best done locally. And there tends to be a sort of hierarchy of expertise where it's assumed if you come from a certain country, you know more uh, and if you come from another country, you know less, which we need to change. But after a disaster, a fresh team often can come in and offer a perspective or an expertise if they're properly trained uh, in, in doing that. One of the things that we do when we hire, whether it's volunteers or staff, is really assess people for their qualities and their appetite for learning uh, and some raw skills, but not necessarily experience. One of the reasons is, frankly, we can't afford to pay the top salaries. We're not a big NGO. We look for potential and we've got pretty sophisticated, particularly in taking them to adverse conditions over a weekend of camping in the Cornwall countryside. 
of assessing people in a way that you wouldn't in a 45 minute typical interview, uh, bringing them on and then training them with real expertise in what they need to know to become technical experts. Because most organizations hire for technical expertise in your CV and where you've worked and who you've worked for. We hire for potential and we've got pretty good at um, working out where potential lies. <laughs> and uh, so you have a you have like a reserve, a, a group of, uh, just like you have the army reserves, do you have your volunteers who are on reserve who you can, you call to action if, if the circumstances re uh, require it? Exactly. We've, we've got over 200 people who are response wow. team members in addition to obviously staff who are response team members. Uh, and it's usually a combination of staff who, who lead and then uh, volunteer members who, who uh, join the team. And that combination is is really powerful. Bear in mind, the, these volunteers often bring private sector or business or financial experience that's or medical experience that's essential to a team going into a context where those things are required. So um, it's the best of both worlds. Amazing. Before I forget, and just in case anybody's interested who's listening, what is your website and how can somebody reach out to you and uh, if they want to volunteer, how do they go about that? So if you go to shelterbox.org, it's as simple as that. You'll find all the information you need about where we're working, but also how you can get involved. So um, response team membership is one path, um, volunteering to fundraise, being an ambassador. So we don't spend a ton of money on, on, on marketing. What we do have is this network of ambassadors in communities all over the UK, the US, Canada, New Zealand, where we've got uh, sister offices, and they go and do talks with local communities. So it's a very unusual, some would say very non-digital way of doing things. We do do digital uh, outreach as well, but we find person-to-person -person ambassadors is a great way to, in a very genuine way, communicate what we do. And so you can also look at doing that. Um, but bottom line is there are a number of ways you can get involved. What we don't want is just an extractive partnership where you donate and then forget about us. Um, you do become part of this community. And, and that's the beauty of being a relatively small organization is um, you have a more uh, ready voice in that community than, than you would maybe with larger organizations. Yeah, yeah. How did you, by the way, just looking at your trajectory, how did you decide or how did you end up where you are today? So you went from the army, you did a master's at Columbia, uh, you, uh, you, you were at the IRC. What's, what drives you personally? What is it that, um, what are the buttons? What's happening? Do you know, I knew one thing I wanted to do was work in the humanitarian development space, ultimately to do the things I didn't see happening in Iraq uh, from my military experience. So that much I knew I wanted to do. The first job I got with IRC was a safety and security manager in Haiti, which is not what I wanted to do, but it was the skill that the IRC could most readily use based on my military experiences, how to keep staff safe and working with the community to build better understanding and trust so that our staff could operate safely. And I, and I loved it. Um, it was not what I wanted to do. Ultimately, I wanted to get into program delivery. Mm. Um, and that doesn't happen overnight. And I think one lesson I, I took is, and I've always applied is, whenever you get that job, and it's not quite the job you want, but it's the job in between the job you want, then just do it really well and, and don't neglect it. Don't take your eye off it because you're only interested in doing something else. If you do it really well, people will recognize it and ultimately you'll get your shot. So even in Haiti, any chance I got to volunteer to do distributions, get involved on the program side when people were sick, I took it on top of doing my job. And, and, and that's how I got my 
first chance to lead an emergency response team into Mali after the 2012 drought and uh, coup. Um, and that was a complex situation. And, and there I learned just uh, don't pretend you're an expert when you're not. I was a team lead, but I was not the child protection expert or the health expert, but I had those with me. And so it's a question of guiding and drawing the best out of them and letting them do their work, but also giving a sense of direction. So it, it sort of evolved from there. And then some personal reasons have led me down towards a more London-based role for a time. But I think uh, if you stop getting excited about this work, then you've lost direction. But actually, the, the titles and, and the roles are, are less important than do you feel you're making a difference? That sounds corny, but actually, um, you, you know it. You, you wake up and you do know it. And you look at your calendar for the day and you know it if you're making a difference or not. And that's what sort of guided where I've gone with my subsequent roles and, and how I've ended up here. I love it. Great narrative and also some really good management tips as well. Tell me about the next 10 years. So if we're looking at the sustainable development goals for 2030, 10 years, what would that, uh, what does success look like to you for the next 10 years? If we were sitting around having a coffee in 10 years time, what is it that you'd like to be boasting about? Well, firstly, if we reflect back uh, and your listeners might know this, but the Millennium Development Goals and their relative success wasn't down to international development and international development assistance. Yes, it played a role, but it was actually large countries like India and China lifting huge numbers out of extreme poverty and achieving some exceptional results. If we look at the Sustainable Development Goals, and I think they're a great and massive architecture around which we can aspire to be a better um, human society on this planet. Um, they're fantastic, but they're not going to be achieved by the shelter boxes of the world. And I don't mind saying that. We are um, effectively a guide. We're a support. We come in at critical points, uh, particularly after a disaster when people are on their knees, but we're not going to try and achieve sustainable development goals for individuals. What we can do is, while we are in these countries, talk about the civil society that already exists, the local communities and the local government, the initiatives that should be um, in place to to achieve them. But the biggest change, I think, since the Sustainable Development Goals were, were defined is that climate change, uh, now potentially future pandemics, uh, SARS-CoV-2, also known as coronavirus disease 19, is, is one of many, and we could see others. And these are going to inhibit the development of Sustainable Development Goals, and there is going to be a disproportionate impact on the poorest countries, which may be affected more than others by not just pandemics, but also climate change. So it's almost as though you're asking the blindfolded man who was blindfolded anyway to now have one hand tied behind his back and also uh, live compared to more developed nations that have less um, uh, uh, issues in this regard. So we're going to see, uh, I fear, a sort of separation between countries that are already lifting themselves largely out of extreme poverty and those in fragile and conflict affected contexts now with coronavirus, now with climate change, who are going to be left behind. And you'll see, and the data supports this, a concentration of the world's extreme poor in conflict affected states from around 45% now to 64%, I think by about 2040 or 2050, they were saying. So that is what keeps me up. And that is where um, Shelterbox is effectively providing a short-term solution to those fragile and conflict-affected communities uh, to get back on their feet, but it doesn't solve 
the the actual disease it just treats the symptoms and that's where we need to get our heads together and be part of something greater and and wider and that's where i think as you say uh, ngos the un the international community needs to think less about just their own problems and think as a global uh, alliance any words of wisdom on on the practicalities of how do you achieve that because i hear a lot obviously people saying yes we must be more collaborative yes we must uh, yeah start a movement and we can't do it ourselves and but but in practice what yeah. what is it that needs to change what are the bottlenecks what are some of the things that you might see day in and day out that you think well i wish this were different well i mean bottlenecks uh, everyone can offer a word of wisdom and i think you're right we've got to get to um pragmatics i'll give you one idea that i think deserves further attention i don't think we can look to a deadlock security council to resolve some of the conflicts and global issues we face to get the um, Paris Climate Accords up and up and going, we need to look at more regionally led solutions. And I'll give an example. Uh, in West Africa, ECOWAS is, is one of the more successful examples of regionally led um, solutions and alliances. I've, I've experienced that through conflict prevention measures that a, a Western African state bloc has achieved. But also, if we look to East Africa, much of what's going on behind the scenes in conflict resolution with Sudan, South Sudan, has had the support of East African states. Uh, they know the context better. Often they speak the language uh, and they have more self-interest in bringing about an end to conflict and also addressing things like climate change, which if it affects their neighbor, it affects them. I think investment and support by the international community in those mechanisms uh, is a very pragmatic way to solve this region by region, rather than thinking very loftily about world peace and, and international cooperation when really the mechanics aren't there. And I don't think the world leaders currently are there to, to be able to achieve that. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Tell me, what's the um, if, if there were one thing that you wanted the listeners to keep in mind after they, uh, they finished listening to today's episode, what's that key takeaway that you'd love them to keep in mind? And that can be anything. It can be a management tip. It can be philosophical observation, whatever you want. Well, what would that be? I was thinking about this. Uh, I'll give one very pragmatic tip. I love pragmatic. <laughs> uh, I was talking to uh, a colleague who is just making the sort of transition from a great operational leader to a great operational speaker about what she does and, and how she does it. Uh, and she did a great job in a Q&A that we, we ran um, for some of our donors a couple of days ago. And she said, it's it's really hard to gauge um, what they think of me and, and what they um, want, particularly now with coronavirus and we're doing everything on uh, Zoom or on Skype. And, and it's hard to get an idea of facial reaction, which we rely on. And for leaders, it can be really hard. And for many of you aspiring to be leaders, I think I found this as well. It's really hard to gauge how you're being received. And it can make you feel insecure and uncertain. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. If you don't feel insecure and uncertain in those moments, it means you pro probably possess too much arrogance and you will probably ignore the people who you're meant to be leading. Um, on the other hand, too much deference to what people think of you just leads to you following what other people think you should do. And, and the trouble is that when you lead, sometimes you have to make a decision that the room is shaking their head at, but you know to be right. And I think that combination is the right thing between um, a good leader, the transition from a, a good leader to a great leader. Um, and, and I've seen that in action in so many places. So I've always tried to keep the humility of wondering what people are thinking mm. when I'm speaking and, and what they think of what I'm saying, um, but also having a sort of lodestar or, or compass that 
guides where I know where we need to go and not being afraid to try and bring people over to why we need to do that. But for those of you who are thinking of, of being a leader, but worry about what you will think, I mean, practice is one thing, but also um, just taking time to get feedback from those around you will set you on the right path. And I know I got to where I have because a, a series of people have uh, at key points in, in my life and my transition from the army into the humanitarian world have invested in me and given me that opportunity. So um, I hope that uh, helps with listeners. That's great. What's the best way of somebody getting a hold of you if they wanted to uh, to get involved? Are you on social media? Are you? Uh... Yeah, just um, follow me on uh, Twitter. It's on at Sanj Shrikanthan, uh, and I'll follow you back, and uh, we can we can start a conversation from there. Otherwise, if you um, drop an email, it's on the shelterbox.org website. Um, then we can also get in touch that way. Perfect. Well, I will definitely start following you. Thanks so very much for today's insight. Uh, really invaluable on many levels and very timely as well. Really enlightening. And also on the management side, a lot of good management tips that I think we can, we can yield from today's conversation. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Please share widely with others. Sanj, thank you. It's been great having you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks, Alberto. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>